0: Italian Wine Podcast. Cin cin with Italian Wine
1: People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Walden. In the hot seat today is Tim Manning, founder-owner of the Vinochisti. Have I said that right? You have indeed. Winery in Panzano in Chianti Classico in Tuscany. Tim, let's start by asking, where are you from? I
0: was born in Manchester and brought up just outside Liverpool little place called the Wirral. <laughs>
1: a little place called the Wirral. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, a little village on the Wirral called Greasby, but I don't think anybody's ever heard of Of Well, we've heard of it now. Okay, so how did you get into wine? To be absolutely honest, I finished my degree in the early 90s. and What did you study? I studied agricultural science.
1: Oh, right, okay.
0: Which at the time I was studying in Edinburgh, focusing mostly on animals, so nothing really vine related. I didn't want to pursue a career, let's say, in that field and had to go and find some work. I ended up uh, responding to an ad at a local up in shop it's and I, a wine shop yes chain of wine stores chain of wine stores in the UK fortunately well sort of exists still now so that was up in Edinburgh I began working there in October 95 just as a sales assistant and basically that was the beginning so you knew nothing about wine at the time I had an interest a kind of passing interest whilst I was at uni I, drinking it, basically well yes I, I liked obviously drinking that as well uh, um, but I had some good friends and occasionally we kind of get together and go and buy some good bottles of wine and and sit down and taste them and try and think that we sort of knew a little bit about them.
1: Do you remember any Italian wines that shook your tree at that period? Well, when I first started
0: working at Obbins, one of the things that kind of ultimately led me to come here was actually a bottle of Cabernet Franc from a producer called Quintarelli from the veneto region it's a french grape variety made by a famous yeah italian producer very very famous but made in kind of quite a particular way too and it just kind of stuck me and one of the things i think also apart from that bottle which was fantastic i just liked italian wines because i found them very diverse very interesting and obviously at the time working as an impoverished sales assistant they were relatively inexpensive as well so yeah it really kind of sparked my interest in wine not only wine but particularly Italian wine.
1: So how what was your first job in Italy then what were you doing
0: and who were you working for and where? So I came here in uh, September 98 really on a bit of a whim I'd uh, been working for Bins up until relatively just before then I decided that wine retail wasn't for me I literally packed my job in. I grabbed myself a return airplane ticket, which lasted a month, had about enough money to last me about four weeks. And I came to Italy with the hope of finding some work during harvest. Uh, There were two things that probably would have made that quite difficult. One was I didn't know anybody when I came here. And two, I didn't speak a word of Italian. After about three or something weeks of kind of basically wandering around the high roads and by roads of Chianti in particular, looking at the pros- prospect of sort of ignominious return to the UK, by a series of fortunate coincidences came across a chap called Sean O'Callaghan, who at the time was the winemaker at Riechine. And uh, after basically harassing him for about a week by telephone, he, he kind of succumbed and gave me a job picking grapes for the harvest of 98 at Liecina. So you stayed? I did, yeah. I worked with Sean for a few weeks picking grapes, which was enormous fun. And then at the end of that time, the guy, the chap who I worked with in the winery at the time, a guy called uh, Pietro, who was basically Sean's right-hand man, he wanted to leave and go and work in a a bigger winery. Sean was looking for somebody to fill his rather large shoes because he was a a very good guy, and uh, Sean basically asked me if I would like to stay here and end up doing Pietro's job, and he would teach me about viticulture and winemaking.
1: Right, so that was uh, that was it, basically? Yeah. What was the main thing you learned from Sean O'Connor, at Reitini, at the time? Well, I, I got to, it
0: was obviously really my first introduction to a variety which I continue to work with and love, um, Sangiovese. Um, those wines at the Etna counties, the Chianti Classicos, are based uh, either in part or entirely on just that variety. Um, I'd never worked at all in a vineyard. I'd never driven a tractor. Uh, I didn't know how to spray vines or treat them or prune them. And Sean, along with Pietro, whilst he was, we worked side by side for a few months. Um, you know, they those those two guys really taught me the the basics. Let's say. Of of how to look after a vineyard, how to grow grapes, how to harvest those grapes and transform them into, into wine.
1: you can picking them at exactly the right time. Yeah, like
0: yeah. Tasting um, the how the fermentation works. Uh, you know, punching downs, pumping over, um, introducing things like using different types of wood, large casks, barriques. Um, You know, it really gave me a a complete grounding in, you know, how to make wine. And then along with the other experiences that I had following Riechine ended up allowing me, if you like, to, to begin to produce my own wine. So were your family quite glad to see the back of you, or were they worried about you? Or... <laughs> no, I was in my late 20s when I came here, so I, I think my family were just very happy that I'd, I was pursuing something that they could see that I was genuinely passionate about. And obviously, you know, they quite liked the fact that I was living here in Tuscany, because, you know, it's, it's not a bad place to come and visit.
1: Okay, so the next step was uh, Vino which is your own brand.
0: Yes, I, after and I worked for Riechener a bit, I actually then went back and completed a degree in winemaking down in New Zealand I spent a bit of time working in New Zealand and the US with Pinot Noir specifically came back to Italy in 2004 to help begin making or basically setting up a winemaking system uh, at a producer called Il Borghetto. Where's that? Near San Casciano. Still is a family-run property. They had planted some vines, produced a very small amount of wine in 2003, but 2004 was really their first, let's say, commercial vintage, very young vineyards.
1: So you were making the wine for them? Yes. How much more challenging was that, knowing that your ass is on the line? If you're working in someone else's winery and you make a mistake, they can say, well, actually, I didn't tell you how to do it right. It's my fault. Whereas if you're on your own... Yes, I did sort of feel that my, my
0: proverbial ass was a bit on the line because when I arrived there, the owner, Antonio Cavallini, he had been making a bit of wine but didn't really have a sort of system in place to produce the wine that was of the grapes that were about to arrive from these new vineyards. And uh, I'd just come back from working in Oregon... Uh, for a producer called Christam and uh, I rather boldly persuaded him to adopt some methods of production which I was quite keen to to experiment with um, that I picked up from working with uh, a chap called Steve Dorner at Kristen. And what does that mean, though? It's about organization you're talking about. Uh, it was about more about method. Like, on. like what? Go on. So, Kristen, this is a, a producer that sort of specializes, if you like, in single vineyard wines. I arrived at Borghetto in January 04 and was immediately kind of struck by the fact that the vineyards were a small property but with lots and lots of small vineyards. And so I wanted to produce the wine on a vineyard by vineyard basis. And that involved doing small batch ferments. So I persuaded the owner to... He was all lined up to buy a couple of very large stainless steel tanks in which he would then ferment and to certainly age some of the wine. I persuaded him instead to buy about 25 one-ton plastic square bins, which we took us about several weeks to find on the internet because they're not really very readily available around here. And in 2004, the vintage 2004... I managed to persuade him to pretty much ferment every single vineyard block, of which there were over 20 in these small bins. Was his bank manager happy with your idea? He was very, very happy because the 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 small bins, the plastic bins, cost an awful lot less than the money he had set aside
1: for buying the stainless steel tank. So basically he was going to put all his eggs into one single big omelette and you said actually if you look after each egg separately yeah. and make a boiled egg with one, a fried egg with another, a scrambler with another, yeah. and then we can see what we can do at the end of the when everything is is, is cooked, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see the point in having this beautiful
0: vineyard, these beautiful vineyards with different clones of Sangiovese, different rootstocks, in some cases different varieties as well, a little bit of Cabernet, Sauvignon, a little bit of Merlot. Uh, I didn't see the point in and putting all those things as you say, all those eggs in one basket, because you know, each vineyard, due to the fact of where it was, due to the fact of the clone of Sangiovese, the rootstock, obviously would express itself slightly differently. We also used uh, whole clusters as well. Depending whole, whole bunches. Whole bunches, yeah, which we selected according to the ripeness of the bunches in each of the different vineyards, so that the percentages of whole bunches changed. And we basically, instead of pumping things over, which was a method that I'd come across obviously frequently from my previous work not just at Reaction but obviously having seen other Chianti class co-producers as well we basically punched everything down So So more Burgundian. Very much so. Very Burgundian by proxy, I
1: suppose, because... Mm. Because basically a a bloke from Manchester goes to Oregon, Oregon's (laughs) influenced by Burgundy, comes back to Chianti... And then starts... And Burgundifies a very traditional Tuscan estate. Yes. So in terms of your own brand, Vino Kisti... Yeah. Let's just talk about the name. And Vino Kisti, where's that that from? You're a very smartly dressed, quietly spoken, polite young man. (laughs) Not so young. (laughs) And Vino Kisti, what does it mean? So, 2006...
0: I was uh, obviously still working at, well I was still working at Bughetto as their full-time winemaker. I, since now I work more on a consultancy basis. A friend of mine who makes wine in Umbria uh, I met him one day, and he'd asked me to try some some Sagrantino, some very young Sagrantino, a red wine grape. Yes, from the kind of noble grape, red grape of Umbria. And I was, I'd always kind of marked, noticed the fact about Sagrantino of how just tough and tannic it could be. So I thought, mm, I wouldn't mind getting a bit of this variety because it was a, a variety that I liked, a bit different to. Sangiovese and uh, just to take a small number of grapes and sort of try and have a go myself so I asked Antonio if I could do that at Borghetto and he conceded and said fine no problem so I ended up buying these grapes from a producer in Montefalco and bringing them by uh, kind of packing them into a hired van bringing them to Borghetto and making them into wine there ended up producing wine and I wanted to come up with a name so the idea was because it was the first then of other varieties that I worked with. This idea of taking indigenous Italian grape varieties from wherever they may appear in Italy and bringing them back to Tuscany and transforming them into wine how I wanted to do it. So without following any of the rules and regulations that was that you so often find in Italian wine production. And so I kind of thought of this and I thought, well, it's kind of a bit like making wine in a sort of a bit of an anarchistic way. And so I kind of thought, well, an- anarchy of winemaking, anarchist, That's that sounds like quite a catchy name. So vinochist, and then I thought, because I'm in Italy, I'd make it sound a bit Italian. So I added an I on the end. So it became vino kissed. So in the end, it doesn't really mean anything in English and it doesn't mean anything in Italian either but anyway I like the sound.
1: So which other grape, apart from Sagrantino from the Montefalco region in Umbria which other grapes have you or are you working with indigenous Italian varieties? So the
0: Sagrantino was joined in 2009 by a white variety from a tiny tiny appellation up in the north of Italy close to Turin called Herbaluce in Piemonte so close to Ivrea in the, the province of Biella, I think it is. Through a, a friend of mine I managed to find a a grape grower who was prepared to sell me grapes, which is no mean feat, because I, th- I think if I'm right, there are only a couple of hundred hectares of ebba luce, and most of it, well, none of it, in fact. I think I would be fair, it would be fair to say that none of it makes its way outside of that area, apart from the three tons of grapes that every year I go up and and buy from 2009 from the same producer.
1: I mean, that Herbalutia has been called Ciemonte's most underrated white grape variety. Did you go along with that? One of the reasons that I wanted to, I
0: I kind of particularly focused on it was, I honestly can't remember the first time I tried the variety, but I, I can remember then trying it after from a few different, producers. I don't know there was there were bigger producers uh, the wines were were well made but quite simple but I don't know there was just something about it that I I liked and and I thought maybe in the case of let's say Vinochisti, I don't know, doing a bit of skin contact fermentation, maybe aging a little bit, little bit in wood
1: to make it a little bit like a red wine. Skin contact. That's what that's what you're trying to say, yeah. Yeah, because the
0: the variety itself doesn't have particularly overpowering overpowering aromas, but it has a certain structure to it. I think that was the thing that, that kind of caught me was that it had a kind of structure to it. But then in the examples that I tried, I didn't think the aromas, uh, the flavours necessarily adequately sort of reflected that. What typical flavours are we talking about? Now, the wines that I produce, I think, could probably be considered to be very atypical. You know, I, I do use skin fermentation, in some cases up to several months You know, this is, as you were saying, to give the wine a certain structure, you begin to make a wine a little bit like a red wine. So you actually extract very similar things, colour and tannin. So you give the wine an almost tannic structure that's obviously not like a red wine because it doesn't contain the same amount of tannin. Now I think I get, uh, I suppose the two prevalent aromas and flavours would be, it has a very kind of flinty note and a white blossom peach where are your wines being sold to? So we, we produce a very small amount. We're limited as to how many grapes we can collect in any one go. So that's around about three tonnes.
1: That's not very much. No. It sounds a lot, but it's, it's tiny. No,
0: a couple of thousand bottles at the end. Our biggest market's the 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 United States, a little bit to the UK. Funnily enough, have a, a reasonably buoyant market in Denmark. But we're always looking for small markets. It's more of a kind of niche market. People who might like to, let's say, experiment a little bit. I mean, these are kind of by their essence quite experimental wines. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make wines that nobody can drink. Obviously, I'd like to drink them myself, but I'd, more importantly, I'd like other people to enjoy them too. So I'm not producing a wine. We're not producing wine, you know, just for the sake of, of experimenting. It's uh, we're trying to produce something that, in the end, is a different slant, a different approach on a variety like Evolution, But in the end of the day, hopefully, is enjoy is enjoyable too.
1: I mean, both Sauvignon and Herbaluce could be described as underdog varieties yes are you, are, you, are you someone that kind of goes for the underdog or, or not yes I think so I mean you thats where you kind of got your grounding and that's very yeah. much an aristocrat everybody knows it it's the most planted wine grape in Italy and now you're scrabbling around for these great varieties that are sort of barely on anybody's radar apart from a few sort of Soms in, in New York perhaps yeah I mean I, I've, I've since added other varieties so a
0: white variety so for the, for the first time Tuscan variety last year eventually naturally San Gimignano Mm -hmm. again yes I think you could describe that that a fair description would be as an underdog variety it's one of the very few white appellations within Tuscany purely white and I think it's an often maligned variety. There are some outstanding producers I think but it's it tends to be, there are lots of quite big producers I think who produce perfectly adequate but not particularly interesting wine so
1: let's say we've given it a bit of the vinochisti treatment What are you looking for in a good vernaccia from Sangioviniano?
0: Well again the, it's a variety that's that's more along the line of, of an air it's not a it's not a strongly aromatic variety, it doesn't base its character on very bright flavours and aromas it's to me it's about structure as well and so I'm working again more on that rather than trying to transform it into a, a kind of fluffy fruity variety which it is not
1: so white wine with a bit of mouth to it, a bit of savoury texture exactly text, yes yeah. exactly,
0: yeah. so some skin contact not as long as the baluche and a little bit of wood ageing but old old wood nothing nothing new
1: and a underdog red that you fancy that, well the other variety which we started working
0: with a, a year or so ago it's nearly due for bottling, is uh, Lacrima di Morro d'Alba, <laughs> which, from a red wine point of view, and talking about these white varieties which are not particularly aromatic is the is the complete opposite. Of the red wine varieties, this is probably one of the most aromatic. So where's it from and what does it taste of? It's from the Marque, from a little area called Morro d'Alba, which can be a bit confusing because people sometimes think it's from Alba from... Uh, Piemonte. So it's on the Ad- Adriatic coast? Yes, not very far from Ancona. I, I would describe it as a, the, one of the noble varieties because it's one of the few really notable indigenous red varieties from the market. Most people, I think, maybe have heard of Vedicchio, the white variety, which is a fantastic variety as well. But Lacrimar is is a, a indigenous to that area. By its nature, it produces wines
1: that are very aromatic, very floral. It's very fruity, isn't it? it's very obviously fruity Yeah, it, very kind of in your face isn't it I mean you talked absolutely. about Bonaccia as a white which is a very not in your face yes, variety a very, quite reserved variety this is like a, it's almost musky isn't it Lacryma it
0: has I mean one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, it smells like Turkish delight it has this wonderful kind of rose petal aroma, which I, I think is fantastic. It's just so out of place for, for red wine. And then, yes, these often the fruit is kind of very sort of crunchy red fruit, very kind of, uh, again, very kind of bright, sort of a little bit in your face. And so, yes, most of the those properties are kind of taken advantage of from the point of view that most lacrimas are made in a very simple, straightforward way to enhance those very typical properties of Lacrum. So they're wines made usually with very little short fermentations, very little post-fermentation maceration, aged for the period that they're aged, which is usually not very long in stainless steel. You know, it's, it's focusing upon those things rather, again, rather than the kind of structure of the wine. I suppose if Vinochisti is any, about
1: anything, it's a little bit about structure as well. I, you know, talking I mean, about structure, you're about wines that are good with food, good on their own. yes. You know, you talking about no, these big behemoth heavy? No, no, absolutely not.
0: No, I mean when I mean when I'm talking about structure, what I'm talking about is a yes, a kind of fine backbone of talent. One of the things that I, I would like my wines to be known for, let's say, is you know if anybody describes my wines as elegant, then that for me is praise enough. You know, I, I, elegance is a, is what what we're about
1: tim manning the elegant anarchist in italian wine <laughs> very exciting project and i hope to keep in touch i hope to um, interview again in the future find out which other great varieties you're going to be working with so i'm sure your project is going to grow very fascinating thanks for coming in on the italian wine podcast it's been a real pleasure to meet you
0: many, many thanks for plenty. thank you follow italian wine podcast on facebook and instagram